again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled Despising Your Audience, a conservative business podcast. The date, April 2023, and my name is Bell Avis. So first of all, uh, before I plunge right on in, I have to confess that I'm sort of, well, hijacking my own podcast, right? Normally I do conservative history, but if the tagline of my conservative historian podcast is that history is too important to be left to the left, well then, business would almost be doubly so. There's always been a, a sort of a liberal intellectual component to history, but business at one point was really the purview of the right. Increasingly, it's becoming that of the left. And therefore, when I see topical issues that I think are worthy of commentary, especially given my background, which is uh, well over two decades within business itself, no, then I have to comment on that. Because, let me be clear, business is too important to be left to the left. And with that, despising your audience. Because of the virulent controversy around trans people, the recent Bud Light fiasco has primarily been about Dylan Mulvaney, a man who identifies as a woman and has made a series of videos and appearances celebrating his transformation. I would note that this controversy was not started by the right, but like so much of the culture wars, as I laid out a few podcasts ago, the left acts and the right reacts. And what we are seeing already with the trans movement, especially with Mulvaney, is something that is really kind of an evolutionary thing that occurs with civil rights movements. They, pardon the word, transform from an earnest, life-or-death, super-important endeavor into, well, a performative scam. Thus, MLK Jr. becomes Al Sharpton. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference becomes Black Lives Matter and Patrice Cullors' Four Mansions. James Baldwin becomes Ibram X. Kendi. Elizabeth, Katie Stanton, and Susan B. Anthony become Jane Fonda, Hillary Clinton, Oprah, her couch, and her $3 billion bank account. So, it is already with the trans movement that Renee Richards becomes Dylan Mulvaney. Having watched three or four of his videos, Mulvaney is, well, he's like no woman I have ever met. Heck, my daughter and her tween friends had more poise and maturity. Instead, he is a pantomime of a woman, as imagined, well, by a hyper nine-year-old girl. It is more mimic than movement. Bruce Jenner becoming Caitlyn is still something I'm trying to wrap my mind around. And not because he or she is trans, but rather because I am old enough to remember him well before the Kardashians when, as a U.S. gold medalist in the decathlon, well, he was kind of the soul of masculine athleticism. But if there is one thing I have never seen Caitlyn Jenner do is prance. Thank God. And prancing seems to be Mulvaney's central act. And like hucksters from eons past, Mulvaney is cashing in. Donna Karen is on board. Given their progressive ethos, witness one C. Kaepernick, Nike is as well, not shocking, but the round peg in this corporate square hole is Bud Light. 
at one point with their Clydesdales and ubiquity on football broadcasts and general, well, patriotic demeanor, Bud Light usually gave off a distinctive, traditional, well, masculine and nay conservative ethos. Everything that Mulvaney is not. Thus, when Bud Light hired him to be their influencer, it set off a firestorm that resulted in plummeting sales, ruined distributors, and the dreaded leave of absence for Elisa Heinerscheid, the VP of Marketing behind this imbroglio. In a recent video, Heinerscheid discussed her decision and why she went down the path with Mulvaney. It should be noted that the Vice President of Marketing of a consumer packaged goods staple is a pretty big deal in such an organization. So this is not some low-level functionary getting unwanted or unwarranted scrutiny. And though Mulvaney gets the press, in this video, the other part is the obvious lack of understanding of her audience, or in this case, and this is very important, a clear rejection of them. Now, given the nature of beer sales in the U.S., Part of looking for new markets, new audiences, and new personas to which to sell to makes sense. In a 2017 article in Forbes, after the Belgian-based InBev merged Bud Light parent Anheuser-Busch and Saab Miller, bringing the two bitter beer rivals under the same corporate structure, Taryn Nora notes of Bud Light, it's no secret that craft breweries have been chomping into macro brands like Bud and Bud Light for years leading the corporation to purchase small breweries and even cideries around the world. However, the report boasts that its craft brands are outperforming this segment. However, consumers' current preference to trade up means that AB InBev's so-called high-end craft portfolio cannibalizes its core brands, including Bud Light. Nevertheless, the brewery states, we remain committed to turning around Bud Light and continuing to invest the time, talent, and resources necessary to do so. So this, uh, this particular quote and article was written about four years before the hiring of Heinerscheid in 2022. Now let's take a little look at Bud Light and illustrate what that article was saying. Bud Light is still, and has been for gosh decades, the largest selling beer within the United States as a brand. But think about these numbers. In 2012, it accounted for nearly 30% of all sales and 20% of total beer volume. Yet in 2020, Bud Light accounted for 17.8% of the total unit sales, but only 9.4% of the volume sales. In other words, those numbers in about a decade had nearly been cut in half. And given these numbers, one can at least understand Heinerscheid's concerns. It's not like she was given a total winner and screwed it up. But, and this is critically important, marketing 101 is still know your markets. The ones you wish to target, but the ones you already possess. And Bud Light was still the leading domestic beer brand going into 2023, something I wonder if is still the case after this fiasco. It is one thing for a marketer to think about new markets, new audiences, or new personas. It is quite another to destroy the existing audience, the existing market, and to basically be in the face of your current personas. 
Heinerscheid's strategy, however, was not to expand her audience or add one, but reject her audience for a new one. In the best Star Trek movie ever made, 1982's The Wrath of Khan, we are introduced to the Genesis Project. The Genesis Project was a machine that can give life to dead planets, thus creating new opportunities for expanding populations. The issue is that if Genesis is used in a world where life already exists, it will destroy all that life in favor of its new matrix. In the wrong hands, Khan's hands in this case, it could be a doomsday weapon. Now it's probably a poor analogy to compare what Heinerscheid was doing to doomsday, but I love my Star Trek references, so there it is. To put it simply, Heinerscheid wanted to destroy her existing audience in favor of a newer, in this case, more progressive one. In other words, an audience that, well, looked and thought like her. In that video I referenced earlier, Heinerscheid made sure to hit all of the requisite buzzwords. Quote, if we do not attract young drinkers to come and drink this brand, she warned, there will be no future for Bud Light. What I brought to that endeavor was a belief in, okay, what does evolve and elevate mean? It means inclusivity. It means shifting the tone. It means having a campaign that's truly inclusive and feels lighter and brighter and different and appeals to men and women. Representation, she concluded, is sort of the heart of evolution. Bud Light had been, uh, well, kind of a brand of fratty, kind of out-of-touch humor, and it was really important that we had another approach. As Charles C.W. Cook, writing in the National Review, noted, as a non-native speaker of this particular form of English, I feel obliged to ask what all of this actually means. Evidently, Elisa Heinerscheid believes that these unusual strings of words provided a comprehensible answer to the question she was being asked. To me, they merely invite more inquiries. Heinerscheid took over in July of 2022. Are we to conclude that before that point, Bud Light was uninclusive, heavy, and dark? That there were large numbers of Americans who suspected that Bud Light was quietly bigoted? That the country's bars were chock full of anguished young drinkers worrying audibly about the presumptive social trustworthiness of Corona versus Alagash White? And if they were, are we to believe that they've been assuaged by the company's mystifying decision to place the face of a performing minstrel atop its brand? I have a lot of questions. First off, why was Heinerscheid put in charge of one of America's iconic new blue-collar brands at the ripe old age of 38 after a career spent mostly with companies like Johnson & Johnson marketing Listerine? Well, she was part of that coveted 40 under 40 label. As I explained in a previous podcast, governmentally, we are ruled by old people, but business-wise and cultural-wise, obsessed with youth. Notice that Though Fortune has their 40 under 40 cover, there is no 8 over 80 list. And think about who would be on that list. Two that come to mind right away, Warren Buffett and Rupert Murdoch. Let's just say that these are kind of, well, we'll say important people. 
a lot more important than anybody on that 40 under 40 list, I would imagine, unless Zuckerberg's there or somebody like that. Now, one of the answers to why Heiner Scheid was given this kind of power is credentialing. Heiner Scheid has that impeccable listing of graduating cum laude from Harvard, albeit with a BA in English, Language, and Literature. Given that she would graduate somewhere in the mid-2000s, one wonders whether Shakespeare or something else was on the docket. A study published in 2015 by the American Council of Trustees and Alumni called The Unkindest Cut, Shakespeare in Exile, looks at the 26 top-ranked universities in the nation, including the ADA Ivy League schools, and the 26 top liberal arts colleges, as ranked by this year's U.S. News & World Report, and found that more than 92% do not require English majors to take a course on Shakespeare. But I digress. English majors and business? Not to worry. Heinerscheid later got an MBA in marketing from the Wharton School, which is part of Penn University. In other words, Heinerscheid was Ivy all the way through. The perfect educational background to sell beer to football aficionados. And as I noted, her, her career began, her professional career, as associate brand manager for Listerine at Johnson & Johnson. Now, I'm the first one to say that some of the generation this or generation that is something more to give writers talking points rather than actual cultural trends. But there is a clear distinction between the 1960s and 70s teachings of tolerance for all races emanating from the civil rights movement and a turn into the 1990s, about the time somebody like Heinerscheid would have begun her educational experiences, to more multicultural training, more about not tolerance necessarily, inclusivity. This in and of itself could well be a positive, right? What's the problem with inclusivity? The problem is, is that at some point it evolved into CRT, in which certain races are celebrated, certain belief systems are celebrated, and others are called bigoted. Not tolerance for ideas, Rather, some ideas are good and some are bad. This kind of teaching certainly can be seen in Heiderscheid's favoritism for a disadvantaged group like Mulvaney's over the fratty culture she wishes to distance the brand and herself. Now, I have some, as I noted earlier, some 25 years of business and marketing under my belt. And my question is, we kind of have a little bit of sense from that video what Heinerscheid was thinking, but what the heck was the CEO thinking of hiring her in the first place? That would be Brendan Whitworth. He would have been around 44 old at the time of Heinerscheid's hiring, not quite the coveted 40 under 40, but also darn close. It would have been a contemporary, essentially. He also graduated from Harvard University, though in his case a stint in the Marines, and, and startlingly spent some six years in the CIA. Now, as CEO over a $50 billion mega beer conglomerate, Whitworth oversees dozens of brands, but none so significant as Bud Light. More than likely, he too wanted to Genesis project the hell out of the old Bud Light audience. When I first set out to write this particular podcast, I began with the concept of content providers, in this case Bud Light, or marketers needing to know their audiences, and in this case, not knowing them. But if in the parlance of the Princess Bride movie, a classic military blunder is starting a land war in Asia, 
then the classic marketing blunder is misreading or simply not knowing your audience. I do not see a lot of ads for Wes Anderson movies on the side of NASCAR vehicles, nor do I see STP advertised outside of the Chicago Lyric Opera House. Marketing is a subject near, I know as nearly as well as history, having made my living by essentially knowing my audiences and providing products, content, and messaging that have resonated with them. One example is, is that when I was marketing software to high volume but thin margins car dealers, I always emphasized how my products could produce more significant margins. When I marketed ID content to be used in hospitals, I put the patient at the center, but just to the right, right in that frame, a harried nurse of whom my offerings made their life a bit easier. But what we're talking about here is more than a lack of awareness of an audience or, or knowledge about them. This is about not liking, even despising the existing audience. Quote, I simply don't understand why they hired the person who is doing the marketing. If your target customer is Kid Rock and suddenly you decide to go RuPaul, that doesn't make any sense, Oxygen Financial CEO Ted Jenkin told Fox News Digital. So I'm looking at this piece by Wilford Riley that illustrates the rather odd choices or intentional choices made by some of the other organizations today. Jack Daniels recently filmed a series of video-length movie-quality promotional ads for Tennessee corn whiskey using the most flamboyant drag queens from, there he is again, RuPaul's Drag Race. The National Basketball Association only recently abandoned its George Floyd-era practice of literally painting Black Lives Matter on the hoops court and letting players wear explicitly political messages on game jerseys, making it possible to see racial justice and equity during a hard drive to the basket. Over in football, the NFL did very much the same sort of thing and apparently has never enforced an already tepid policy against players kneeling in protest out on the field during the national anthem. Nike, which equips both leagues and whose legendary spokesman Michael Jordan once famously reminded a left-slanting reporter that Republicans buy sneakers too, has behaved similarly in recent years. The Sioux Giant not only gave a nine-figure, my God, nine-figure, a nine-figure deal to the most famous of these kneelers, Colin Kaepernick, but also hired the unmistakably male Mulvaney, there he is again, to model women's sportswear, <laughs> oh my God, such as sports bras. Oh, Nike, I can't make this stuff up. One of my personal favorites from the smug NFL campaign was when some players got into fights or were screaming at each other, only to reveal a stop hate phrase on the back of their helmets. The Onion or Babylon Bee could not have done better. So given the obvious issues with these odd marketing choices, why go there? In the case of Heinerscheid, she has been put on long-term leave, and the parent has shed very hard-to-replace market share at an alarming rate. The NBA has leaked viewership as has the NFL. Dick's sporting goods decision to no longer stock guns has an estimated cost of $250 million a year to the company, and that is a massive blow to margin-strapped retailers competing with the likes of Walmart, 
and Amazon. And when Harry's Razors decided to go woke along with Gillette, the best a man can get, who recently ran an ad depicting a father teaching his biological daughter how to shave a beard, the Daily Wire introduced Jeremy's Razors, which became an overnight success. And in the razor world, again, consumer packaged goods, there is not a 30% growth in overall shaving. That means that every Jeremy razor sale had to come from one of those other brands. I would posit that one reason is that many of these organizations are flush. The value of an NFL team keeps increasing. Though the NBA loses fans, its TV deals are still in place, making solid money. And both Gillette and Anheuser-Busch are, are part of much larger conglomerates. But there's something else at work here. For an answer, Wilfred turns to the great Thomas Sowell, and so shall we. In Sowell's The Vision of the Anointed, Self-Congratulation as a Basis for Social Policy, the author provides the premise that there is an elite consisting of professors, bureaucrats, and increasingly senior business people whose role is not to cater to the needs of a constituency, not to know their markets, but rather leave them out of their ignorant and childish ways. The vision of the anointed is one in which ills such as poverty, irresponsible sex, and crime derive primarily from society rather than from individual choices and behavior. To believe in personal responsibility would be to destroy the special role of the anointed whose vision casts them as rescuers of people mistreated by society. So, Heinerscheid is not misreading her market. Instead, she thinks her market is, well, just dumb or worse, unenlightened. And fortunately for these Luddites, Elise is here to tell them to embrace a certain set of values such as celebrating trans people, regardless of how obvious the scam may be on Mulvaney's part. And if you think Mulvaney is, well, a bit of a loon, or that Black Lives Matter is a confidence game, that is your bigoted ignorance, and you are just not worthy of drinking Bud Light. As Sol notes, what is seldom part of the vision of the anointed is a concept of ordinary people as autonomous decision makers, free to reject any vision and to seek their well-being through whatever social processes they choose. Sol claims, using a great deal of empirical data, that these folks tend to think of other Americans not as peers, not as countrymen, so much as the benighted and other more modern synonyms come easily to mind, deplorables, bitter clingers from flyover land. In anointed benighted discourse, the goal of the anointed isn't an honest exchange of views so much as teaching the benighted what the new truth is, changing and broadening their provincial little minds. Now, the majority of my marketing was in the B2B space, intentionally avoiding business to consumer. Why? Because I could have a greater impact in B2B. I could add new markets and address new audiences with the right products. The impressions in B2C, however, are set in so much of the consumer packaged goods space. Nikes are not inexpensive sneakers, but really kind of a fashion statement. McDonald's is, this is going to shock you, neither gourmet nor very healthy despite the salads. But, and I have to confess, it is tasty and absolutely consistent from store to store. 
if you want high-end coffee, go to Starbucks or even one of those boutique coffee producers. If you want less expensive, well, America runs on Dunkin'. And if you want a simple, not heavy, inexpensive beer with your buddies, Bud Light is the brand. At least it was. One of the most complicated moves in all of marketing is to just take an established brand and move it to a new audience, especially in the crowded and competitive beer market. But Heinerscheid, nor her bosses, didn't seem to care. Too fratty says it all. The loss of money might seem especially odd in light of these mistakes, but profitability, which is the lifeblood of companies, of capitalism, and rarely if ever mentioned by the Bernie Sanders crowd, of government revenues, is less valued than in the past. In the past 30 years, we have seen banks, big and small lending organizations, car companies, semiconductor firms, steel manufacturers, and airlines all bailed out by the U.S. government. For people who cannot articulate moral hazard, there is this feeling that I can perform my social justice functions, exercise my id in service to DEI, and there will still be a job, a company, a career waiting. Someone will bail me out. For an executive at the age of 38, this is what they were raised on. Accountability? Consequences for one actions? What is that compared with saving the world? What is that compared with rescuing the downtrodden and putting those ignorant frat boys in their place and serving a higher social justice? Thank you for listening to the latest of the Conservative Historian Podcast. A little conservative business thrown in this week. Please check out all of our podcasts up and down the dial. We're on. We are over 160 of them right now. Thank you for listening.